The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour of a Friday. Happy to have you with us and happy, as always, to be working with the audio wizard himself. We just like to call him bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, Benny? Doing well. Poof! I'm back for another one with you. Uh, this here come the judge here yeah, come right? the judge do you even know where that comes from i've heard it before and i'm gonna ask you where is it from suzanne it's from laughing uh-huh ronan martin's laughing yes there it was an amazing hour back in the 60s late 60s early 70s that was sammy that, davis jr yes that was sammy davis yes. jr heard there and let's just say it, in nutshell form it was a nutty nutty show they the writers i don't know how they didn't have nervous breakdowns they crammed more comedic material into a network hour than you can possibly imagine it used to be stunning to watch the pace of that show and there would be a trademark clap at the end of it so that even as you had NBC and the icon or logo at that time, there would, there would still be applause clapping all the way through that. It was wall-to-wall entertainment, purely amazing. I think we're going to have at least a touch of that today because we're lucky enough to have Caroline Heldman with us once again. I was going to say that, Gary, that just like laughing, we're going to see how much we can cram into this hour we have so many notes, we had to put it on a toilet paper roll today. Our notes have their own notes. Our notes have notes. Our notes have subnotes. Professor Caroline Heldman earned her PhD in political science from Rutgers University and specializes in the American presidency and systems of power. She previously taught at Whittier College, Fairfield University, and Rutgers University. Professor Heldman graduated summa cum laude with a degree in business management from Washington State University. Go Cougs! Go Cougs! And has worked extensively in the private sector. She works at Occidental College. She has written so many things and been on television so many times, we can't take the rest of the hour to do that. She is just a prestigious political pundit, and we are so thrilled that we have made friends with her on air, and she's been on numerous times Welcome to Manson Mitchell once again, Caroline Heldman. Happy Friday, Suzanne and Gary and Benny. There's your applause. The applause. It's All amazing, these years huh? later, the, <laughs> yep. the echoes of applause from the Palouse, where we have sophomores playing football. Just a great place. Keith Jackson, may he rest in peace. Lots oh. of great Wazoo people generated the, the minds at a great teaching university. There was one other accolade that you wanted to mention about Caroline Heldman today and ask her. Absolutely. By way of congratulating this lady who joins us. I don't know how many times she's been on now. I forgot to look it up. But it's been plenty, but not enough. That's the way I look at it. Welcome, Caroline. And congratulations, my friend. You are newly named the executive director at the Representation Project. First of all, I would love to hear more about that. Ah, well, thank you so much, Gary. And I should say, I don't know if you know this, but but my partner's grandfather is was Keith Jackson. So I know Keith Jackson as Grandpa Keith and had the great pleasure of listening to him talk sports in, in the dining room <laughs> for the last decade. Oh, what a gentleman. passing last year. Oh, just, just a love. Um, as my partner says, I'm the grandson he always wanted. So here we are. Um, yeah, so, so I am so excited to be the new uh, executive director of the Representation Project, which 
most people actually know through our film. Um, so this is Jennifer Siebel Newsom's organization. She started it about a decade ago. And for folks who don't know, she's the new um, first partner of California. She's married to Governor Gavin Newsom. And so I have taken over her organization. And her work um, and now our work really pushes uh, to challenge damaging and harmful gender norms. And the, the way we do this is mostly through film. So the film Misrepresentation um, and the film The Mask You Live In uh, both explore how gender norms harm uh, girls and women and boys and men, respectively. Um, and we just uh, put out our impact report, and we find that 28 million screenings or, or times that this movie has been seen or these films have been seen on Netflix, um, you know, in community settings and college settings. So um, really excited to be uh, at the helm of that. And we have a new film coming out uh, this spring called The Great American Lie that looks at uh, wealth inequality. So we are fast producing important documentaries that contribute to the national conversation. I love that right there because I well, am a big believer quality. in the social value of documentaries. Yes. And, you know, they don't generally, at Oscar time, of course, they have a category. But the thing is, documentaries have so much to say about place and time and the implications for the future. And we all acknowledge that if we're watching something made by Michael Moore. But there are many documentarians out there who really need to be seen and heard more often, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the power of documentaries to raise awareness have been you know, profound. Um, I think about um, Al Gore's film on climate change, which really is the first time that millions of Americans started to realize it was a problem. Um, you know, misrepresentation, we've actually, I, I, I don't know if you remember the sexism in Super Bowl ads, but we actually ran a campaign back in 2012, the hashtag not buying it campaign, and Super Bowl ads went from being these kind of horribly sexist, stereotypical ads to now something you can watch with your whole family. And that's, that's the power of, you know, documentary and media for political action. It is. It absolutely is. I know how excited Al Gore was when he won that Oscar. I would like to thank the Academy. <laughs> we <laughs> and we all felt we like <laughs> That's right. But well, we love him for the work that he is doing. It, you know, you great talk, that this is going on. Yes. You, you talk about uh, wealth and influence as being one of the things that you're looking at next. And there is, I think that is way, way, way at the top of what's going on in our political atmosphere right now. And if you can believe it, that was number one on my list. And Gary and I had over 10 things to talk to you about today. And I know we won't get to all of them, but since you mentioned that next movie coming up, I wanted to bring up the idea of uh, Jeffrey Epstein and our Labor Secretary Acosta, because this was a story I had heard about some time ago, and I, I believe it was on um, MSNBC where they talked about uh, Jeffrey Epstein trafficking in young girls and having sex with a number of underage women, underage girls, and uh, how he more or less got off on that. He, he made a plea deal that nobody knew about, and, um, and it came right back up today, right in our faces. And I was, I was very, I was, I was grateful, given that you and I and Gary have all talked about um, Bill Cosby in the past and the Me Too movement, that there continues to be 
some revealing of these types of crimes. And I was wondering if you had something to say about that today. Oh, Suzanne, wow. It's the Me Too movement, as you note, right, the, the shift in the atmosphere now, it's no longer acceptable for this kind of behavior, even if it's powerful men. And what we're seeing is is going back to a case that's now 11 years old. And for folks who don't know the details, um, Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, was trafficking in girls. Uh, he would pick up runaway girls, you know, some as young as 11 or 12 years old. Uh, most in the case are 14 or 15. Uh, he would also find girls. He had a whole crew working for him, finding girls in other countries um, and bringing them uh, to parties in New York and Florida. And he cut a plea deal where uh, our current labor secretary, Alexander Acosta, um, he arranged the plea deal with him. Uh, so that Jeffrey Epstein would only, he got an 18-month sentence. He would only serve 13 months of that 18-month sentence. And Acosta made sure that uh, his other victims, dozens of them, um, never spoke with him. So he was the prosecutor at the time and cut a deal that a judge is now saying is illegal because it violates um, the rights of the victims in this case. And this case has really, I think, far-reaching effects um, in that it's not just who's involved. It's also Bill Clinton, who took numerous rides on what they were calling the Lolita Express, which was Jeffrey Epstein's private plane. So Bill Clinton um, has attended parties and and been a part of that world. But perhaps more importantly, um, for the current political scene, Donald Trump, the the rape allegations against Donald Trump, of which they're, well, two out of three, his ex-wife says that she, that in the deposition uh, of their divorce deposition that that she raped him. But there's also a case that hasn't really received much attention. It got a little bit in the lead up to the election. But a, a woman now who was 13 at the time says that Trump raped her at an Epstein party and that she, like other girls, was recruited. She was at a bus stop and recruited by one of Epstein's handlers. And she says that there was a 12-year-old uh, who was also there at the time um, and the 12 year, so it, it's statutory rape for the 12 year old, the 13 and the 13 year old, if these allegations are, are accurate. And oddly enough, they've actually been confirmed by a 29 year old, um, one of Epstein's handlers who cut a deal. So this has really far reaching effects if they open up these Epstein cases um, that may link to the current president of the United States. And it's important to note that when Donald Trump was asked about his connection to Jeffrey Epstein. He said that he didn't, he barely knew the man. And then it turned out in, in court documents um, that he had 11 different ways, uh, phone numbers and emails for contacting Epstein. And this sounds like a conspiracy, except all of this is a matter of public record and a matter of court documents. Wow, that's uh, even more than what I knew. The only thing that I knew in relation to uh, the president was that he had sent a, a tweet out, you know, he's a good man and he likes young girls or he likes them young or something. I had I had heard about that tweet last night and, um, it, you know, that just that just sickened me. But, you know, as you said, it, it ha may have far reaching effects. And it reminds me, I don't know um, if you agree or disagree, but you know, when the first shockwave that came through with Bill Cosby, it was like, oh, no, not him, you know, not dad. 
and and now with all of the the whole movement of of all the women who are coming forward and all of this that has been kept hidden the wealth and power that uh gets away with things that there's a different legal system if you're a billionaire or a multimillionaire as there is for the everyday person and uh this to me seems like we're uncovering more and more and more like it continues it's not it's not getting stopped do you get the feeling like this this trend will continue maybe so that it does eventually either stop or slow down or we we uh, elect more uh, people to office that we would be able to relate to better well, I think the more we get women and people of color into positions of power, people who have been traditionally marginalized, the system will change. And I don't think that women are inherently more moral than men, for example, but I do think no. that, you know, these the, and I think we agree on that, right, Suzanne? Um, but, yeah. but getting people in who have experienced things, who have been out of power, who, have, who know what it's like to face discrimination, um, I think they'll be less likely to engage in that when they get into a position of power. Um, and you're absolutely right that this wasn't the, the Epstein case, um, which has now ensnared the labor secretary, out, you know, Acosta, who it's important to note, he also oversees, uh, regulate the enforcement of laws and regulations pertaining to sexual um, harassment and to human trafficking. So this is a man I do not trust in this position, regardless of political party. But he worked with others. He worked with Kenneth Starr and Alan Dershowitz, these high-profile, very wealthy attorneys who protected this billionaire financier. Um, And these girls, I mean, they were 30-plus, you know, number-wise, but they were just teens who were being trafficked. And the, the way in which, you know, their lives matter so much less than Epstein's lives um, is, is really quite shocking. Right, right. His money, his power, his influence is much more important than 30-plus lives. It also underscores, for me, the way in which these young ladies were being treated not as human beings with dignity and aspirations of their own, but as mere commodities. Absolutely. They were just objects for the pleasure of others. And if you read the deposition in um, Katie Doe's, the, the 13-year-old at the time, Donald Trump um, accuser, um, it, it, it's just, you know, it, if those allegations are accurate, it's just a complete dehumanization of another human being. So one person thinking that another human being simply exists for their pleasure and for them to do whatever they would like. Let me ask you a bigger bigger picture question. Gary and I enjoyed watching an eight-part series on the Smithsonian Channel called Rome, Eight Days That Changed Rome, something like that. And we were thinking about the fall of the Roman Empire. And, you know, I, I say to Gary, are we in the fall of a United States empire? Are things going in a certain way, which is actually going to put us on a better, stronger footing, or are we going in a direction which is going to collapse uh, on us the way things well, are? Do you have a sense about that? You know, I I don't. I think that that the foreboding, that the kind of doom that that you're feeling is what a lot of people are feeling. Even if you are a Republican, I think Donald Trump's 
presidency um, really brings about a level of fear because he's making up the rules and bending them as he goes along, right? And so there's a fear that these systems that we take for granted are disintegrating before our eyes, whether we like the outcome policy-wise or not. Um, I tell my students that, you know, that this is the test, right? This is the test of our Constitution. And right now, Donald Trump is seriously testing it. So, for example, he's testing separation of powers um, and checks and balances by uh, declaring a national emergency to build the wall, which is just a flagrant um, way of saying that he is going to override the legislative authority of Congress, right? So Congress didn't fund the wall the way he wanted to, and now he's going to try to create policy on his own, even though the founders you know, wanted that to lie with Congress and they wanted the presidency to simply be a check on whether or not the legislation coming out of Congress um, was legitimate. And so Donald Trump, you know, just, just in the past week has just flipped the Constitution on its head. Um, whether or not he'll be held accountable for that, it's a long, lengthy process. And it's likely that the courts will find that he had the authority to do it on paper, even though it violates the spirit of the Constitution. So this is a really long way of saying that, uh, you know, these the assaults on our systems and on the Constitution are constant and extreme. But at the end of the day, I do have faith in the American public um, that they will uh, resoundingly remove him from office in 2020, not so much out of out of partisanship although that plays into it, but much more out of a sense that what he has done to the office and to our country um, is simply not what Americans want. And I do think, I, I don't want him to be impeached by Congress. I don't want him to be uh, removed using the 25th Amendment that he's not fit for office. I don't want him removed through you know, a court um, filing through New York or at the state level, um, because that, that shifts the responsibility away from the American public. I want us as a country to come to terms with the fact that we put someone into office who does not fit our values, who fits the values of one third of Americans, but not two thirds, who has flagrantly kind of violated the norms of this office. And I think that if the American public does vote him out of office, that that will be the way in which, you know, we are redeemed in some sense. And it could be or should be pointed out that in the case of Watergate, well, they were going to impeach him and Barry Goldwater and some of his colleagues in Congress told Nixon to his face that he would not have the votes in the Senate to avoid conviction. Big difference. Richard Nixon had been overwhelmingly, in this case, elected to a second term. He couldn't be elected again. In the case of Donald Trump, you can vote that kind of stuff out of office. This is the opportunity coming up in 2020. Right. And I think we, we need that as a country for a clean slate. Um, I have a lot of very thoughtful Republican friends who, um, you know, even though they agree with some of the policy outcomes that Donald Trump has advanced, are really worried about the way in which he's done it and what that's done to the fabric of our society. And I'm, of course, concerned that we won't have a free and fair election. Um, we haven't done a full investigation into 2016, um, but we know that 21 states have their Voting systems breached, and now we know that it was uh, Russians, um, Russian influence, Russian engagement in those 21 states. We've never investigated that. So I have deeper concerns about whether or not our electoral system can be salvaged, given, you know, the constant attacks from other countries that seem to have, you know, some comfort, if not aiding and abetting from within the U.S. Um, but 
I think that we as, as an American public will rebuke this, as we did in 2018. I mean, Donald Trump, the silver lining of someone like Donald Trump, who is essentially the last gasp candidate of folks who were afraid of, of the shifting social order, right? He gave voice to all of these Americans who are who feel like the social order is leaving them behind, who feel like, you know, women and, and people of color getting a rightful amount or a fair, a meritorious amount of power in our, in our culture and our society is somehow taking something away from them that they were entitled to. That set of folks, and, and they are a, a minority in the United States, that set of folks has a voice in Donald Trump. But his, his ascendancy really speaks to the fact that our culture actually is shifting to become more meritorious and more democratic because it is including more people who have traditionally been marginalized for reasons that have nothing to do with merit, that have everything to do with identity, which, you know, in some sense, Donald Trump is kind of forcing us one step closer to democracy. Ironic as it is, because he admires the dictators, the strong men. He certainly does. Ironic and painful. Um, and we have a lot of work to do, right? Because there is this vocal minority of folks who are really pushing back against the shift in the social order to, to be more meritorious. And we see this in the, the rise of hate crime. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented um, all manner of hate crimes that have shot up in the Trump era. And, of course, um, the most recent, um, the, the, uh, the list of the, the man who Coast has... Yeah, Coast Guard, um, Christopher Paul Hansen, we need to call him a domestic terrorist. He was stockpiling firearms and substances and had a kill list. And he was using the same rhetoric that has come from some of Donald Trump's tweets that have come from right-wing news. Um, and he's just one of so many white men with aggrieved entitlement who have either planned or actually carried out acts of violence because they believe that something is being taken away from them, right, that they are entitled to um, power and, and, and status in society. Um, and they can feel that shifting. And, and that it, again, it's such a good thing because it means that merit will matter more uh, than identity when it comes to how our society is arranged. Let me ask you then, Caroline, if this is indeed the trend and it looks much as you have described it when I think about it, Will the Republican Party as such, maybe even known by that name, still exist in another 20 years? That's a great question, Gary. Um, I would, I'll say, unfortunately, yes. Um, our two-party system has been codified into law in all 50 states. Uh, so the two parties have an incredible advantage, as most Americans kind of know it at a gut level because it's very difficult for third-party candidates to get any sort of foothold in politics. And this has everything to do with the fact that the parties, um, the two parties, once they got into power, set, you know, they set their power in stone at the state level. So I do think the Republican Party will exist, but it needs to have a reckoning. It needs to decide, um, I would hope, that uh, folks with high levels of racial resentment and high levels of modern-day sexism um, are not the people they represent. And I saw this morning that Steve King, who is an avowed white supremacist, um, said, gave an interview uh, this morning saying, yes, I'm running for public office again, and I'm not going to apologize for saying I'm a white supremacist, since when did that become a negative word? Um, so I think that the Republican Party, 
which thankfully did sanction, you know, Steve King after years of those sorts of comments. Um, they need to sanction everyone in their party who is doing that in order to say, look, we're, we're actually not the party of racism and sexism. Um, so that they need they need to have a reckoning on their side. Steve King was has been elected nine straight elections. So I think in his mind, he can't lose. He will get number 10. It will be interesting to see what happens with that election. You're not willing to change his brand. No. After you've been elected nine times? Yeah, I've been elected (laughs) nine times. So why would I change? And my argument, if I'm primary and he's going to have primary opponents, it appears, I would be arguing he can't get a committee assignment. So what he's talking about, what's good for the voters of our district, the people that I represent, you can't represent them as anything but an ugly mouthpiece if you can't get on a committee because your own leadership won't have you. Gary, you should be running his opponent's campaign. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's, it's not very sexy to say, you know, to try to explain to voters about the committee system in Congress. Um, and Suzanne, I think you're, you're right. He, he will run and get elected again um, because he's serving a certain constituency that doesn't have an issue with white supremacy. Um, mm. But the party at the federal level, the party brand suffers every time they let a Steve King in, into the fold. Yes. And, you know, my concern was back when the Tea Party was known as the Tea Party. Now they're they're calling themselves something else. But they've already been splitting into factions. And I find it interesting to find all of these Republicans who have left the party because they say it's no longer the party that it used to be. My grandparents were big Republicans, and I don't think they would recognize the party today. Um, the way that it is. So it just seems like it's splitting into a bunch of factions, which has made me wonder why um, it might not be dissolved at some point, just the same way that the Federalists all split apart and factioned, and now there's no Federalist Party. I would love to see a new party. I, you're more optimistic than I. Um, I just, these institutions are so entrenched. Um, I think it, it will be a very hard sell to actually get the party well, to become a new one or or really even to shift, because at the end of the day, you do have people like Steve King who continue to get elected or, you know, high levels of Republican support in Arizona for uh, Joe Arpaio, you know, avowed racist um, law enforcement officer. And then just look at the polling nationally for Donald Trump. So even though, you know, we know anecdotally a lot of very thoughtful Republicans who are no longer a part of the party or don't like Trump, at the end of the day, the average Republican voter, nine out of ten, supports this man, despite what he has done to our country and our constitution. And the ones who can't hack it leave the party. Represent former Representative David Jolly being a case in point. He just can't identify as a Republican anymore. Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. You know, yes, has she worked for Republicans? She was very much a part of the George W. Bush administration. But there comes a time when you say, that's enough for me. This does not represent who I am as a Republican. And those people, I guess, just don't count for purposes of Republican operations. So uh, I'm very curious to see how all this plays out in 2020. Caroline Heldman is our very honored guest of this hour. Uh, We're taking just halftime break. And when we come back, kick back and just relax because it's Mueller time. 
on the other side of our break. We are Manson Mitchell. Our special guest is Caroline Heldman, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited, and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell, welcome back Caroline Heldman, professor of politics at Occidental College to survey the political landscape and the state of our nation. On Saturday, Richard Spitzer makes his debut discussing his book, Manifestation Math 101. Here is getting what you want by using a step-by-step approach that you can start anytime. Bringing you fascinating talks since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Bored with the other stations? Hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. Andy Griselda, I believe, I'm trying to verify it, I'm just going by my ear, but I believe that is the suddenly late and for a very long time great Peter Tork of the Monkees who left the planet yesterday. He has left the building. He was the, the lovable dummy on the Monkees TV show, but anything but in real life. He was an accomplished and versatile musician, a true pro. There's even a story about him trying to teach Mickey Dolenz, who was rather indolent how to play the drums for a particular song. And finally, he just had to give up because Mickey Dolenz had his persona and liked to sing, but he wasn't that much of a musician per se. But they had Peter Tork, and now both the Beatles and the Monkees are halved. And that's uh, rather disconcerting to those of us who grew up idolizing those folks. So best of luck to Peter Tork on his journey. We are taking a look at the American political and social landscape with Caroline Heldman, who is a pundit of the first rank. And we're proud to say that she's been on our show, I think now is about, what, the 15th time? Today. Unbelievable. That is fantastic. 
And as I teased before, uh, before I do go that thought, we've got to do the marketing piece. Caroline, with all that you have going on, <laughs> you seem like a very busy lady 24-7 to me, just by what I catch in the media and the Facebook posts, etc. that with all you have going on, is there a Caroline Heldman Central where people can get up close and personal with you to follow your career? Uh, Dr. Caroline Heldman. Dot com uh, or Facebook, Caroline Heldman, Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram, and I post a lot of cat photos there. So be warned. Okay, that sounds like a pundit sometimes dealing with under other pundits and hosts of their own show. I'm going to, as I said to Suzanne during the break, I think to ask one question, and I know I can ask six more, but this just occurred to me. I got to get it out there, and then then it's going to be Mueller time. I promise. <laughs> what is it like for you, Caroline Heldman, a lady of your esteemed academic reputation, a cool customer in an interview or in a debate? What was it like encountering a gentleman by the name of Tucker Carlson? <laughs> uh, so I was on Tucker's show uh, well before he got his show, but I was on with Tucker for many years at Fox. Um, and for listeners who don't know, I left Fox um, and with you know, I, because of sexual harassment and gender discrimination. Um, but Tucker uh, Carlson, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about the different Fox News hosts. I actually really like Sean Hannity off air. He's very kind, loving, and he's got a great family. Bill O'Reilly, not so much, always a little mean. But Tucker Carlson, um, very smart and very polite off air. And then when I would get on air with him, um, my biggest pet peeve with him was that he would always move the goalpost, right? So his style of argumentation is disingenuous in that he will ask you a question, you will believe that you're answering that question, and then he will move the goalpost when he doesn't like your answer um, and act as though you were discussing a completely different topic or question. So um, I didn't find him to be very intellectually honest. Um, I didn't find him to be very intellectually adept, but uh, in person, you know, nice guy. I wish he was still wearing his goofy bow ties. Yes. <laughs> he seemed less malicious back then. That's, yes. I just wanted to know about that because I know that there's a, you know, maybe this is just one of those things that's a flash in the pan, but there was a, I believe it was a historian, a Dutch historian, it was over at Davos, and, and they were attempting to do an interview together, and Tucker Carlson just lost it with this guy because he wasn't getting the answers that he wanted, and he kind of blew a stack, I guess. He does get he does get a little animated on air if he doesn't like the answers. Um, it, there was a, a piece in The Root a few days ago where they um, included a lot of videos of people intellectually spanking um, Tucker Carlson, and I, I have a video up, or one of the videos is mine, but I... It happened maybe 30-plus times where I would be on air and, and it would kind of escalate to the point where he was almost yelling. Um, that is his style. Um, and it's, it's kind of fun in the sense that he's, he's just ridiculous if he doesn't like what you're saying, right? So um, he gets very angry about that. And I will say that what I really dislike um, about his show, not having to do with me or interviews that I've done with him, um, but what I really dislike is his promotion of white nationalism, um, his reference to immigrants as dirty, um, his reference to immigrants as criminal, and this whole kind of myth-making machine that Fox News and the Trump administration have put together about immigrants. The facts are that immigrants, whether they are here legally or whether they are here illegally, 
have lower crime rates than people who were born here. So yes. this whole kind of smear campaign against Latinx immigrants and declaring a national emergency at the border, we do have a humanitarian crisis at the border because the cartels are abusing immigrants who are trying to come here for a better life. But that is not what Donald Trump is calling a national emergency. He is call, he is spreading myths and lies about Latinx immigrants, which really are, are hurting all of us. Because if we can't be honest about the fact that we are a nation of immigrants, um, then he's, you know, he's jeopardizing people of color who are living here now and who want to come here for a better life. Unless you are a Native American Indian, you are an immigrant. Right. They're the ones who can say, get off of our lawn. Right. That's right. Well, it's Mueller time. Let's get into this, Caroline Heldman. You know, let me let me paint a worst case scenario for you. You unpack it for me as much as you like. There, worst case scenario, in my darker moments, I think, okay, here's what's going to happen or what could happen. Do you remember the Iraq study group? All Rush Limbaugh had to do to those estimable people, wonderful public servants, he destroyed all of their hard work, which took quite a lot of doing to put together the Iraq study report and its recommendations. He called it the Iraq Surrender Group. The Iraq Surrender Group, next thing you know, nobody paid one whit of attention to their recommendations about how to get us out of the morass in Iraq after that huge, costly, deadly mess we had made. It just didn't matter. And I'm worried now, Caroline, that if Mr. Barr, our new attorney general, if he wants to, he can virtually bury that report or a very small summation of it can be disseminated, not to the public, but to Congress in a way that would make it much ado about nothing. And that opens the door for Donald Trump to say, I told you there was no collusion. This was all fake news. What a witch hunt. What a waste of taxpayer dollars. Elect me in 2020 for more honest government. <laughs> well, and that scenario is actually probably the most likely scenario. Um, so when the special counsel laws were established, um, the law requiring, for example, the Whitewater investigation uh, report to be delivered to the public in Congress expired. It was not renewed. So Attorney General Barr is actually not required to share the, the Mueller's report. Um, he's not required to share it with anyone beyond his own office. Um, there is, it is likely that members of Congress will demand that. Um, but if I were Barr and the president had just put me in this position and I went before Congress and refused to say that I will release the report, the odds are that it's, you know, a bit of a tacit quid pro quo where the president put him in that position so that he would not release the Mueller report. And this is how politics is played. And it's, it's very ugly. Um, with that said, um, I would imagine that there would be a lot of leaks um, when the report comes out, if that is the case, if the public can't get their hands on it. My guess is that that it would be heavily leaked, um, that we would get information from that. Um, and I don't think that, you know, with all of the, the indictments and, and what we do know, um, I don't think that Donald Trump is, is, can, has a leg to stand on when he says that there's nothing in the report. We already know too much, right? Um, we know that 34 people have been arrested, including uh, six former Trump advisors, um, and they have pled, they pleaded guilty. So it's not, there's not a mystery as to what their actions were, maybe some of the details, sure, but uh, you know, the link now between Roger Stone and WikiLeaks, 
Um, of course, Paul Manafort and the news that he'll be indicted in the state of New York, even if the president pardons him. Um, so he's in a position where he's, you know, not going, he's not going to be able to just stay silent after this. Um, so a lot of this will work. A lot of the information will work its way out, even if Barr buries the report, which I fully expect him to do. On one level, that is just so depressing, Caroline. But then I try to cheer myself up by saying Bob Mueller is brilliant. And I think one of the things that he is doing, and legal experts like Chuck Rosenberg, whom I love listening to, I think he is he's the calmest man in America, and he just lays everything out in logical sequence, and then you understand. I love that guy. But what's indicated is that there is so much potential, and some of it happening already, that court cases can be filed, farmed out, if you will, to the Southern District of New York, perhaps in D.C. as well, to an extent that goes beyond the pardonable reach of a Donald Trump, so that if there are indictments at the state level, such as happened with the Trump organization, the Trump con job, the caper that masqueraded as a charity, the Trump organization, that if it goes to these district federal courts, the word's going to leak out because indictments that are sealed eventually get unsealed. So we would find out that way. Indeed. And we might even find out during a lie, you know, in real time during a court proceeding if the states allowed those documents to be public. Um, I, I would love to see what Michael Cohen has to say. I mean, he's going to obviously testify before Congress. Um, so we'll get a sense of that. But um, looking, getting a peek inside the Cohen documents, uh, Roger Stone and Manafort especially, um, they just have an incredible amount of um, you know, information that uh, linking all of this directly to Trump, right? Or at least that is the assumption. And of course, Michael Flynn, one of the first to fall, who pleaded guilty in December of 2017, making false statements to the FBI. I would love to see what information he offered in exchange uh, for his plea deal. So I, I have faith that that uh, Mueller has done a good job uncovering this. Um, he's a Republican, right? A very thoughtful person, very bright person, um, who was brought in probably because of his ability to get witnesses to turn, right, or, or to get suspects to turn over information. And I would say he's done a masterful job um, dropping one domino after another and getting these plea deals. I look forward to the, as much as anyone, the unfolding of this and to see how Congress is going to react. You know, Adam Schiff, Democrat, who has great responsibility right now, I believe he's on the Judiciary Committee, if I recall, that he is and did very eloquently in the New York Times, unless it was the Washington Post, in which case, I apologize, it was one of the biggies there just this morning, called out his Republican colleagues. And he did it in an eloquent, not an accusatory way, but really uh, he, was, he was inviting them, he was encouraging them to stand up to this president because he said, bottom line, it's not enough the things you say to me privately. We have our conversations and you tell me about Donald Trump's lack of decency, his lack of integrity, the way he flouts the law, how he undermines our democracy. It's not enough that you tell me or other Democrats privately that this is how you really feel. You must stand up publicly to Donald Trump. The ultimate question is, do they have the courage? Well, 
and, and to do so is political suicide. So it's a little disingenuous for Adam Schiff to act as though they don't have that pressure, right? As though it's simply a moral choice. And of course it's a moral choice. And I would, that, that's part of it. Um, and I love Adam Schiff. He is my representative. And, you know, I split my time between three different cities and in California, he is my representative and he is fantastic in terms of his, you know, what he is doing in Congress, but also what he's doing for his constituents back home. Um, but calling on his Republican colleagues as though it's simply a moral choice, they'll say that, you know, unless the party does it in a unified fashion, then having individual members speak out will be the end of their career. Um, I think if you look at, at the few who have spoken out, uh, most of them have spoken out when their career was already over, right? So Paul Ryan, right. when he's mm-hmm. not running, Jeff Flake, when he's not running. Yep. And there's a reason for that. And it really goes back to the the stranglehold of party politics, which I would apply to both Democrats and Republicans. I would love to see uh, more independence in terms of what um, members can say publicly, can say in, in social media accounts, for example. I love that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is really using social media in a way that, you know, Nancy Pelosi probably doesn't 100 percent love, uh, but it shows that there's a variety of thinking and opinions in the party. Um, and during times like this, when we need the Republicans to hold uh, their president accountable, it, it it would be great if they actually had the power to do that without it being political suicide. I keep thinking yeah. that the Republican Party needs a Howard Baker, but instead we get a Lindsey Graham. <laughs> well, and Lindsey Graham used to be reasonable, too. It's He's had such an odd change of heart in the last, you know, 18 months, almost a night and day where he was, uh, maybe it was because Senator John McCain was still alive, I'm not sure, but he was just so forthright in his criticisms of Donald Trump's erratic and unconstitutional behavior, and then flipped a switch where all of a sudden he's the the president's biggest supporter. Um, Yeah, party politics really prevents um, real dialogue and real thought and and thoughtfulness in the political process. And, and with McCain gone, and you're talking about the only way you can get the changes if everybody comes together on that, who who is the standard bearer these days in the Republican Party? Well, Mitch McConnell needs to hold his party accountable. He is well, yeah. um, more responsible than anybody in Washington, D.C. For, for what has happened in the last decade. And I would mm-hmm. actually say that his destructive force... Um, his unification against a black president because he was black, and I'll put it in those terms, even though Mitch yeah. McConnell wasn't quite that obvious. His idea that um, the Republicans could gain political ground by exploiting the racism in their party and the way in which they should do this is to adopt relatively, uh, you know, sometimes overtly but subtly racist attitudes, um, ideas, rhetoric, and policies as a way to oppose Barack Obama and and gain power in Congress and eventually, you know, put Donald Trump, the head of the birther movement there. Uh, Mitch McConnell is, was the architect of that plan. And I, I don't, I can't speak to his personal racism. I can't speak to the personal racism of uh, specific Republicans. But what I can say is it's obvious that they used that the opportunity of a black president to elevate the power of their party using racism. And that is why we have a Donald Trump in office today who ascended to that office by stirring up racial resentment and, and xenophobia and sexism, by calling you know Mexicans rapists, 
um, talking about Muslims in very xenophobic and racist ways. Um, and of course, being the titular head of the birther movement, we then elect him after our first black president. That wasn't happenstance. That was Mitch McConnell. And then on the other side, on the Democratic side, um, you know, we have so many people and such a diverse group running. As Gary said today, how many is too many? And uh, <laughs> is it going to be like it was with the Republicans where Donald Trump just knocked them out one by one uh, from a large number down to just, uh, you know, himself? Is there going to be something similar happening in the Democratic Party where you have so many people wanting to get in right now? Well, it, what a wonderful group, though. I mean, maybe maybe that's what Republicans thought in 2016. I don't know. But Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Kobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. I mean, it's just an incredible group of candidates. I look at this list and I think, you know, some are more liberal than others. Some are Democratic socialists. Others are actual Democrats. Um Every single one of them would do some very interesting things for the, and good things for the country. I have no doubt about that. Um, it, it's tough to know what the Democratic Party should do. Um, we know from lots of political science research that there's a penalty for a president who is a person of color, and there's a penalty for candidates who are women, right? Um, for Barack Obama, the penalty for being a, a black candidate was about 7%. That's, he, was, he should have shown about a 7% higher level of support in 2008 um, for um, female candidates, the penalty is around 9%, um, and, or at least with the one situation that we know of, which is Clinton in 2016. So the question is, do, they, do the Democrats cater to um, this new you know, broad base that Obama built um, that is still very much alive, this diverse coalition? Or do they play it safe and they put a white man at the top of the ticket and then a person of color or a woman or a woman of color um, in the second slot? Um, it's hard to say. I know that uh, Bernie Sanders' candidacy is already being taken more seriously and Joe Biden's being taken more seriously than I would say all the women and people of color um, in the race. And that signals to me that, it, that there are certainly some mostly white um, mostly male Democrats would be more comfortable having a white man at the top of the ticket. Um, and they're automatically seen as more legitimate for this office anyway, because of the ways in which we conceive of the presidency, which is why there's a penalty for people of color and women who run for this office. But at the end of the day, um, the fact that such diversity is in the Democratic fold right now means that we've normalized this as presidential candidates moving forward, at least for Democrats. I will tell you this, Caroline, a week before I heard Chris Matthews say it on air, I made a prediction to Suzanne. It's not really a prediction. It's more of a, fa a fantasy at this point. But I said, I think what the Democrats should do is nominate Kamala Harris for president, and she should choose Sherrod Brown of Ohio as her running mate. I call him Columbo because he's got that gravelly <laughs> voice. He's very relatable. He has that slightly rumpled look. And he, he is very wise on policy. He relates well to the working class. And he's a senator, a much beloved senator from Ohio. And the Democrats this time around need Ohio. You know, that's a, a great plan. Um, putting a black woman at the top of the ticket 
you know, a daughter of an immigrant from uh, immigrants from Jamaica and India, that would just that would be a turning point in American history. And I share your same love of uh, Sherrod Brown. Um, Yeah, a Harris Brown ticket would be incredible. It would also stir up if we thought the 2016 election had a lot of racism and sexism, that ticket (laughs) would would take it to a new level. I would, I would love for Senator Brown to be there in the Senate saying, uh, just one more thing. I'm sorry to bother you. <laughs> and it's Senate News, no less. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have two minutes to go. Uh, Caroline, we're delighted to have you with us anytime. We've surveyed the landscape as best we could because our time is limited. I wish we had another hour for sure. Ultimately, bottom line it for me, I think I heard it earlier from you, is Donald Trump almost inevitably to be defeated? Or could we be looking at a situation where, like Nixon in 72, he wins re-election, though nothing like Nixon did over McGovern, but has both houses of Congress to deal with in the hands of Democrats? That's one scenario I've been looking at. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Trump has an uphill battle. uh, With that said, he had an uphill battle the last time around. I 41% of Americans say they plan to vote for him in 2020. He's had the lowest approval ratings of any president in modern history. He hasn't broken 50% in in the first two years. With that said, um, I would be concerned about whether or not the elections were free and fair. I would also be concerned about that the ticket that you described or putting uh, a woman or a person of color or, um, you know, goodness forbid, both on the ticket, which would inspire a large number of racists and sexists to turn out to vote. So, I don't think it's a done deal, um, and I certainly would be concerned mostly about whether or not it's even free or fair. Thank you. As always, so beautifully said. Caroline Heldman, we can't wait for Visit 16. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to happen, but I sure hope it's sometime soon. It's wonderful to talk with you this morning. Join us tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific. And coming up next... Christine Upchurch, followed by Susan Harmon, followed by a brand new show, American Road Trip Talk. Yes, hosted by yours truly. So stay tuned to AM 1150. We love to have you on the air with us. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.